Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church, Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another, and impacting the world. Friends, we now come to the reading and to the teaching of God's Word. This is not an intellectual exercise that we go through now. This is intended to be a spiritual exercise, a life transformational exercise. And so with that in mind, even before we come to the reading of God's Word, can I encourage you to bow your heads and pray to Almighty God that He would do a work in your hearts and in your minds. Let's pray to God. Father God, we read in your word that all men are like grass and their glories are like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but your word stands forever. Jesus Christ, you said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Lord God, your word is without error. It, it, is, it, is, it is true in all that it says. And it is able to teach us for all matters of life and godliness. This morning, Lord, we want to learn by your Holy Spirit moving within our hearts and moving within our minds. Our desire is that our minds might be renewed and our hearts might be stirred and our lives might be conformed to your way and to your will. Would you make it so? We healed ourselves, Lord God. Even right now, we healed ourselves to your word. You are Lord over this place. You are Lord over our lives. Teach us, Lord God, we will follow. Help us to obey. These things we pray in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. He is our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Amen. Friends, can you turn with me to 2 Corinthians? 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you're visiting with us or you don't know where 2 Corinthians is in your Bible, it's in the New Testament, second half of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Now let me just tell you that 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9 go together. I'd encourage you to go home uh, this afternoon and read through those two chapters together so that you can get something of the context of the book uh, or of those two chapters. But this morning, I'm just going to read from verse 1 to verse 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 through to verse 9. As many as are as able, would you please join me in standing in the honor of the reading of God's word? Please rise. Friends, hear God's word read from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, 
but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for your sake, he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Just so far in the reading of God's word. Amen. Please be seated. This morning, we are going to be talking about money. So we're going to start off with a pop quiz. You can, you can give your answer to the person that's sitting next to you. How many verses in the Bible talk about money? Is it 100? Is it 200? Is it 500? Is it 1,000? Or is it 2,000? Give your answer to your friend sitting next to you. Answers coming up shortly. <laughs> Friends, when it comes to money, um, A.W. Tozer gave the following illustration. He said, money often comes between men and God. Uh, someone has said something like this. If you take two small coins, five cent pe- do you get five cent pieces anymore? <laughs> I haven't seen a five cent piece for a while. But if you took two small coins, two five cent pieces, you could be standing before the Drachensberg Mountains. But if you took those two five cent pieces and you put them before your eyes, how much of that would you see? Not a lot, Right? Because even two small coins can come in between you and the glorious view in front of you. Now, it is true to say that money can come between yourself and God. Money can come between men and God. And it doesn't even take large quantities of money. It's not like the rich that have lots of money. Uh, Their money can come between themselves and God. Two five-cent pieces can come between you and And a panoramic view of the Drakensberg, so too even small amounts of money can come between yourself and God. If it is placed in the wrong position, it will effectively obscure our view of Him. Now, the Bible contains, here's the answer to the question. You guys have been waiting for it, right? The Bible contains 500 verses on prayer and faith, but well over two thousand verses that relate to money. In Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke, one out of every six verses relates to money. Almost 40% of all of Jesus' parables use money to convey a teaching of one kind or another. God has plenty to say about wealth and about giving. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, from verse 1 to 9 and following, Paul is addressing the collection of funds 
for suffering Christians in the churches, in the church of Jerusalem. Now, we don't know why they were suffering. The Bible gives us some clues and some indications. It might have been that there was a worldwide famine and they were still struggling with the repercussions of the famine. It might be that the church in Jerusalem was facing severe persecution and had come under all kinds of distress. It could also be that they were suffering from financial exclusion, the church, from financial exclusion in Jerusalem, whatever it might be. Paul had spoken to the Corinthians who had previously agreed that they would participate in a collection and contribution for the church in Jerusalem about a year earlier. But some stuff had happened. There had been some water under the bridge. It seems as if there might have been false teachers in Corinth, some of which were prosperity preachers, who had messed up the understanding of the Corinthians with regards to finances. Uh, They had also, in some ways, stopped trusting the Apostle Paul. And so a period of time of, of strained relationships had gone on between Paul and the church in Corinth. Now, that relationship had been restored. As he writes to Corinthians, he writes of a restored relationship between himself and the church in Corinth. And now because the relationship has been restored, Paul wants them once again to commit themselves to the collection for the saints in Jerusalem. An offering had been taken up and needed to be taken up by all the Greek churches, uh, the churches of both Achaia and Macedonia. Uh, That would have included the churches such as Thessalonica and Berea uh, and others uh, that were in Macedonia and Corinth that was in uh, in this area of Achaia. Um, Paul did not see giving as he enters into these two chapters. He did not see giving as a mundane matter. It's just a matter of putting money into a plate uh, or something that was periphery to the Christian faith. Rather, Paul sees the grace of giving as a core part of what it means to be members of the wider Christian church. And so I want us to look at these first nine verses in three parts. I first want us to look at the grace of God, the grace of God toward the Macedonian church, the grace of God. Secondly, um, in the next part of this passage, I want us to look at the acts of grace, the acts of grace that the Corinthian church had been called to. And lastly, I want to look at our Lord and our Savior of grace, the person of Jesus Christ in verse 9. And so the the first point, the first order that we're going to be looking at is our God of grace uh, in verse 1 through to verse 5, our God of grace. And this is surprising, surprising. It starts off in verse 1 by reading, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Should I read that again just so that we've got it firm in our minds? I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. The churches in Macedonia, I've already said, they are Gentile churches. They would include the churches of the cities of Philippi, the cities of Thessalonica, and the cities of Berea. 
uh, Paul says the grace of God, that word grace, is very, very important in the next two chapters. We need to understand what grace is. Grace is it, at its essence is about giving. It's about God giving abundantly what we do not have. Grace is God's unmerited favor towards man. Now you can remember what grace means by remembering the letters in the word grace. The G, the R, the A, the C, and the E. God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is God giving us what we do not deserve. And grace may be the greatest word in all of Scripture. I'm not saying that it's greater than love, but there is a sense that grace includes love because grace is love in action. Now, I said there was a surprise in this text, and the surprise comes in verse 2. Read verse 2 with me. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Surprising, yeah. Surprising. Because what Paul is saying is that grace, God's grace towards the Macedonian church has actually resulted in something from the Macedonian church. There's something that is coming from the Macedonian church that is the manifestation of God's grace toward the Macedonian church. What is more surprising is that it's giving. The Macedonian church is a giving church, and this is the emblem of God's grace. And what's even more surprising is that this giving is a squeezed kind of giving. What do I mean by that? Well, on the one side, you have a severe test of affliction. We don't know exactly what the test of affliction of the Macedonian churches was. It might have been war. It was a, an area that the Romans had campaigned in for many, many years. The, the severe test of affliction might have been Roman taxation. We know that this particular area was severely taxed by Rome. Whatever it was, Paul could describe it to the church in Corinth as a severe test of affliction. And on the other side, squeezing, as it were, like a tube of toothpaste, squeezing, as it were, is a, an extreme poverty. Paul describes the church of Macedonia as dirt poor, as extremely poor, as beggars, not more than beggars. And so on the one side, you have this affliction in the church of Macedonia. On the other side, you have this extreme poverty in the church of Macedonia, and they are squeezing together, and one wonders what is going to come out of the church in Macedonia. And you know what it is? And this is surprising. It's joy. The apostle Paul speaks about their abundant joy and a wealth of generosity. An abundance of joy and a wealth of generosity. Paul speaks here about a wealth, not uh, the value of the gift that they were giving because this was a poor people. It couldn't have been that large. But their wealth was measured by their giving heart. This is not a transactional amount. They had a heart of giving and it was God's grace to them. Friends, 
to the Macedonian church, giving was a pleasure, it wasn't a pressure. Giving was a blessing, it wasn't a burden. Giving was a challenge, it wasn't a chore. And it was an intimate matter. We read that in the, the verses from verse 3 to verse 5. Read together with me in your own Bibles, please. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves, they gave themselves, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. It says here that they gave according to their means. They gave out of the proportion that they had. As God had given them proportionally, they gave back. Not just a portion of what they had, but a proportion of what they had. Paul gives no percentage for generous giving in this text. In a sense, this text is teaching us it's not about the million dollars you might get one day in life. It's about the rands and the cents that you have today. They gave according to their means. But they also gave beyond their means. In other words, they didn't just give uh, proportionately by what they had. They also gave out of the surplus which God had given them. They gave literally until it hurt. They gave according to their own accord. This is voluntary giving. This is willing giving. This is not being coerced out of them or manipulated out of them. They were begging to give. Friends, I know that we are a giving church. Do you know how I know that we're a giving church? Because I see the heart of giving in us. This past week, um, as Carol passed away, the Dekivets needed your love. They needed your love. And so one of the things that the ladies in the church did was they, they put up a list for meals for the next two weeks. That list was filled in just a few hours. It was filled completely. There was no space. And so people kept on coming to Liesl and, and Melissa and others saying, how can we serve the Dekivits? How can we give? We want to be on the list. Who can drop off the list so we can get on? There was a sense of urgency, a sense of even begging to participate with the love that was being expressed to the Dekivits. Now that is the heart of giving. The heart of giving isn't giving as a chore, isn't giving as like something I have to do. It's something I want to do because I want to partner. I want to participate with the work of God and with the people of God. I saw that even this past week. They gave of themselves. They gave of themselves. Friends, when we think of giving, we mustn't just think of money. We mustn't just think of money. Because that's not what Paul is talking about here. Paul is talking about proportionate giving, and he's talking about voluntary giving, and he's talking about this grace of giving, and he's talking about a giving which comes even out of a time of affliction and even in the midst of extreme poverty. But you know what kind of giving that he's talking about? He's talking about giving all of yourself, all of your treasure, all of your time, all of your testimony, all of your talents to God. He's talking about the kind of giving that we read about in the book of Romans. 
Romans starts with just a whole lot of doctrine for the first 11 verses. And then the apostle shifts gears in verse 12. And he says what in chapter 12, verse 1? Brothers, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves, your bodies, as living sacrifices, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Our spiritual worship isn't giving a certain percentage on a certain day of the month to God. Our spiritual worship is presenting ourselves to God, all of us, as sacrifices, our lives, everything about us to God all of the time. I heard the story of a, of a young girl uh, this past week. Um, the offering plate was going around, and when it got to her, she couldn't have been more than, than, uh, than five or six. She put the plate on the ground, and she stood in it. And the deacon, obviously, furrowed his brow and said, what are you doing? And her answer was, I learned in Sunday school that I must give myself to God. And this was her way of doing it. Now, I don't know if that story is true or not, but I do know what is true. The Macedonian church, which is commended by God, not only partnered with, for the needs of the saints in Jerusalem, but they gave themselves, and they gave themselves first to the Lord. Friends, when you think about giving, think about giving yourself first to the Lord, and then by His will to whatever else He has directed you to. I said there were three points that I wanted to make, and the first point was this, the, the grace of God, and I took that from the word, the grace of God, in verse 1. The second point that I want to make is the act of grace, and it's the act of grace toward or, or from the Corinthian church, and you can see and read about that in verse 6 and in verse, uh, and in verse uh, eight, uh, 7, where it talks about this act of grace. Read verse 6 together with me. Accordingly... We urge Titus that he had started, that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. Now, Titus was one of Paul's uh, special partners in ministry. Uh, Titus and Timothy and a few other people, uh, Paul would send to churches in order to correct issues uh, that Paul had identified. Sending Titus to the Corinthians uh, meant that a high-powered delegation was coming to help the church in this particular act of grace. Paul calls it an act of grace, an action. Friends, uh, for those of you who are with us over the Easter period, we were looking at Philippians, right? Philippians chapter 2. And you'll remember in Philippians chapter 2, it was all about humility at the beginning of the chapter. And then it was about Jesus Christ, about his condescension, not considering equality with God something to be grasped, but emptying himself, taking on the form of a man, coming and dying, even a death on the cross. Remember how Jesus emptied himself on Good Friday. And then up from the grave he arose. And we read about this exaltation of Jesus Christ. This exaltation so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will one day confess that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. That Jesus Christ is Lord. That was really the point that, uh, that Paul rose to in verse 11 of chapter 2. What comes straight after that recognition of Jesus Christ as Lord? Well, you are to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
Well, again, yeah, we have this discussion that Paul is having with the church in Corinth, and he's saying, listen, yeah, grace is an action. Grace looks like something. Friends, love looks like something. Faith looks like something. Our belief in Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior needs to look like something. And we who have received grace from above need to live grace out in our lives. And grace is generosity. Giving to others is a mature act of love, and Paul wants the church in Corinth to participate in it. Read verse 7 and 8 together with me. But... As you excel in everything, as you are growing up in the Lord, as you are coming under His Lordship, as you are an exciting church, Corinthians, as you are a singing church and a worshiping church and a Bible reading church, as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Excel means to abound. And surely Paul intends to mean it in terms of the money that they are going to be partnering with. But he adds to this idea of excelling every spiritual blessing uh, that the Corinthian church is doing. He says he wants them to excel in this act of grace. The very essence of grace is giving, it is giving. And what Paul is saying here is, listen here, you excel in everything. I want you to excel in grace too. And I don't want you to think that excelling in these things, in love or in joy or in worship or in Bible reading or in Bible study or in proclamation of the passage on a Sunday or in church attendance will eclipse your need to excel in giving as well. Just as you pursue each and every one of those things, friends, I want you to pursue giving as an act of increased maturity and an act of love in Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Not one of these things, not faith or speech or knowledge or earnestness or love, is a substitute for giving. Are you committed to Bible study? This is good. I'm glad. Be committed to Bible study, but Bible study isn't a substitute for giving. Are you committed to prayer? That's good. (laughs) I'm glad, but prayer isn't a substitute for giving. Even as you excel in other disciplines of the Christian life, so you need to excel in in this discipline, believer, that you might demonstrate that your love is genuine. It says in the text in verse 8, I say this not as a command. In other words, I'm not demanding from you. I'm reminding you of the vow that you already made, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. Your love is also genuine. Friends, giving puts our love on display. You can say with your words that you love a person, but demonstrate with your life that you don't. Think of absentee fathers, men who leave too early and arrive home too late, never spend time with their children. Or even worse, think of men who have had children and don't take responsibility for the children that they have had. You can say that you love something with your lips, but demonstrate with your life that you don't. Giving, Paul is saying, 
proves that your love is genuine. Corinthians, you say that you love the church in Jerusalem. Now show that you love the church in Jerusalem. Give. You vowed that you would. Now show it in your actions. I said that there were three parts to this passage. The first part was this idea of the grace of God. And the second part was this idea of the act of grace that the Corinthian church was being called to. The third part is this, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It says in verse 9, read with me in your Bibles, please. For you know, or you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Friends, Jesus Christ. The Macedonians on the one side were dirt poor and they gave. But the second example that Paul gives is Christ Jesus. He was infinitely rich, but he gave. We read in John chapter 3 verse 16 that God so loved the world that he gave. He gave. That salvation is a free gift which we receive. This text is saying, never mind whether you are poor or whether you are rich, the call on us, is, uh, the examples that we are given, is to give to God's praise and to His glory. But can there be a richer example than the person of Jesus Christ, who though He was rich, though He pre-existed, though He was eternally God, the Son of God, Though he was the darling of heaven, though all of heaven's praises were raised to him night and day, unceasing and with end for all eternity, Jesus Christ, the darling of heaven, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, took on the form of a man, lived among us, died for us, even death on a cross. Paul here isn't talking about material riches, like Jesus had storerooms of gold that he was counting in heaven. Paul here is talking about the richness of the person of Jesus Christ, the eminence, the preeminence of Christ, that he is first over all things, that he is worthy of our praise and our worship eternally, and yet he was born humbly into a manger amongst animals and sweat, that he lived a life among us, that he hungered and that he thirsted, and that he went through pain and that he experienced the loss of friends like Lazarus and that in the end, Jesus Christ went to a cross to die, not for your material wealth, but for your eternal good. He died on a cross that you might be saved. This is the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He died that you might live. The eternal Son of God did not consider equality something to be grasped, but He humbled Himself that you might live. You say, how? He died as a substitute in your place. The Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. The wrath of God was absorbed by his own son. 
So that on the cross, Jesus drank the last dregs of God's wrath against you, a sinner. And as he cried out, it is finished, it truly was. The wrath of God had been satisfied in his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. And then up from the grave, he arose. Hallelujah. The firstborn of all salvation. The firstborn of all the redeemed. The firstborn of all who would be saved. The first fruits. Friends, Jesus, infinitely wealthy, humbled himself, became infinitely poor, so that we might be raised up from the cesspool of sin and despair in which he finds us. And raised up and seated with him even in the heavenlies. That we might receive every spiritual blessing from God. What a great savior. We can never outgive God. He's given it all. And so Paul, on the one side, demonstrates these people that were in poverty gave so abundantly. And on the other side, demonstrates and gives the example of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave so abundantly. And in the middle, he says, Corinthians, what about your act of giving? You cannot out give God. I have eight very brief applications from the text that we have read that flow from the text. Applications and implications. The first one is this. Giving is an expression of the grace of God. Giving is an expression of the grace of God. Friends, remember verse one? It didn't start off by saying the Macedonians gave. It started off by saying the grace of God has been experienced by the Macedonian church. Praise the Lord. God gave. And so as the Macedonians give and as we are called to give, it expresses something of the image of God to the world. Our gracious God is a generous God. And if we are to be his people, we need to reflect something of his generosity to the world. Amen? That's point number one. Point number two. Giving is to be a joyful act. Squeezed on the left by affliction. Squeezed on the right by extreme poverty. The Macedonian church gave and they gave out of abundant joy. Giving is not to be a burden. God wants you to be happy. And giving is to be part of your expression of joy. Giving is to be an act of joy. Application number three. Giving is to be proportional. Giving is to be proportional. Paul speaks about giving according to means. The New Testament nowhere designates a percentage of income a person should set aside, but only says that gifts should be in keeping with our income. So the rich give more and the poor give less, but both give in a proportion to what they have been given. Before men, before men, before God, all men are equal. Because giving is according to means, the rich give more, the poor give less, but both give proportionately. And so both enjoy this act of worship before Almighty God. Application number four, giving is to be voluntary. Giving is, is to be voluntary. The Macedonians gave according, uh, of their own accord. Uh, at Central, no one is going to come knocking on your door asking to see your payslip. No, your giving needs to be between you and the Lord. Your giving needs to be Holy Spirit giving. 
Your giving needs to be before the Lord as your sacrifice of praise to him. Point number five, application number five, implication number five, giving is to be intentional, intentional. The Macedonian church was encouraged to complete their act of grace. They needed to complete their act of grace. And that would take intentionality. Giving, like any Christian discipline, isn't going to happen by accident. For those of you who aren't giving at the moment or who aren't giving proportionately at the moment or who aren't giving joyfully at the moment, if you are to become a joyful, proportional, um, uh, a voluntary, intentional giver, it will be because you exercise intentionality about giving. And let me give you some examples. Bible study. If you two grow in your study of Scripture, it will be an intentional act. You will set aside time for the reading of Scripture. You will set aside time to go to a Bible study. You will set aside time to open God's Word and read God's Word and understand God's Word so that you can apply God's Word in your life. But if you don't set aside time, how much Bible reading are you going to do? Well, not a lot. You're going to come to church on Sunday and you're going to open your Bible and then you're going to close your Bible. It's going to go on a shelf and get dusty for the rest of the week. And you're going to fail to honor God and grow in this discipline of grace. You must be intentional about Bible reading. That might mean that you must set aside time in your morning. Or it might mean that you set aside time in your lunchtime at the office. Or it might mean that you sit with your family around the dinner table after supper at night. But you have to be intentional else you won't read your Bible. Prayer. Prayer is the same. For those of you who want to grow in prayer or for those of you who have vibrant prayer life, you've set aside time. And for some of you, you've even set aside a place where you pray. Maybe you go off into your study or you go off into a room or you sit somewhere in the garden and you pray where it is quiet because you know if you're in the house, the kids will distract you. <laughs> or if you're at work, your co-workers will distract you and you can't pray during lunchtime. And so you head out of the office and you go down to a tree and you sit underneath the tree and you pray to Almighty God. And that's your time of prayer. The bottom line is prayer happens intentionally. Bible study happens intentionally. Giving happens intentionally. It might mean that you have to, actually, you must budget. Budget. <laughs> intentionally budget. Budget for everything in your life. But as you budget, budget to give proportionately out of what you have received from God to God as an act of worship. It might mean that you need to set up an EFT. Or, or if you're older, you have to get your niece or your nephew over so that they can set up an EFT on your account so that you can intentionally get involved in giving to God, even as the Corinthian church intentionally gave to God. Point number six, giving is about more than money. Can you remember? They gave of themselves. They gave of themselves. Friends, giving is about you proving the genuineness of your love. Giving is more, about, more than just money. Giving is you giving of your time and your talents and your treasure and your testimony to Almighty God to use in whatever way he chooses to his own praise and to his glory. Giving is to be sacrificial. We saw that in the example of Jesus Christ. That's my seventh point of application. Giving is to be sacrificial. Uh, we also saw that in the Macedonian church. Uh, they gave not just out of what they had, but they gave even out of what they did not have to glorify God. Giving is to be sacrificial. It's not to be a burden, though. 
It will require us to give out of our surplus and beyond to and for one another, whether out of our poverty or out of our riches. Both are to sacrifice. It's not like the wealthy aren't to sacrifice because they're wealthy and so they can just uh, give an amount and it looks great. No, they too are to sacrificially give to the extension of God's kingdom that his name might be praised in their life as a living sacrifice. But the same is true of those who are poor. Friends, all of us are to give proportionately out of what God has given us. And lastly, point eight, giving is inspired by the cross of Christ. Because of our poverty, Jesus Christ renounced his riches so that through his poverty, we might become rich. This is not a material poverty and wealth which Paul has in mind. This is a saving opportunity that is open to you today. Friends, there's two types of people in the church today, those who are saved and those who aren't. Those who are saved by the power of the Holy Spirit working in you, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. As you read in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 of giving, may the Lord stir in your heart a desire to grow towards Christian maturity in this area. That's the application for you. It's quite clear. If you are an unbeliever, please don't put money into the offering. Please don't think that the application for you in your life is to give. It's not. Your, your good works would be like filthy rags before God. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. You need to recognize your humble estate before God. The fact that you are a sinner in need of a savior, you need Jesus. You need him at once. You need him because the wrath of God is coming and it is coming for sinners just like you. You need Jesus. You need to cast yourself on him and ask that he might take your heart of stone and turn it into living flesh. You need Jesus. And you can have Jesus, friend. Call on his name and you will be saved. Streams of living water will flow from him and into you in abundance and then out of you that the world might see that you are in Christ and that you are his. You need Jesus. You need Jesus, not a tithe, not an offering. You need Jesus, not a good work, not church attendance. You need Jesus. You don't need your family's Christian testimony. You need a testimony of your own, a witness of your own, that you have placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. Have Jesus today. Turn from your sins. Turn from your love for this world and the things of this world and cast yourself upon the King, that he might be Lord of your life and you might live in good works that have been prepared for you before the foundation of the world. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father God, give us Jesus. Please, we pray. Give us Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, in ever-increasing measure. Open the eyes of the dead today. Change their hearts. Help them to see Jesus Christ and their desperate need for him. For those of us who are in Christ, Lord God, we ask again, give us Jesus. Give us him in increasing measure. For our sake, he became poor, that we might be rich. May we abound in all the blessings and glories which heaven have to offer. But first and foremost, give us Jesus. 
our Lord and our Savior, that we might walk with Him and talk with Him throughout all of our life, that, Lord God, we might be strengthened with, by Him, that we might be encouraged by Him and equipped by Him and live our lives to His praise and His glory. Give us Jesus, we ask, in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.